Chapter forty three of Arthur Mervyn. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Arthur Mervyn by Charles Brockton Brown. Chapter forty three. This unexpected and agreeable decision was accompanied by an invitation to supper, at which we were treated by our host with much affability and kindness. Finding me the author of William's good fortune, as well as Mrs. Morris's, and being assured by the former of his entire conviction of the rectitude of my conduct, he laid aside all reserve and distance with regard to me. He inquired into my prospects and wishes, and professed his willingness to serve me. I dealt with equal unreserve and frankness. "'I am poor,' said I. "'Money for my very expenses hither I have borrowed from a friend, to whom I am in other respects much indebted, and whom I expect to compensate only by gratitude and future services.' In coming hither I expected only an increase of my debts to sink still deeper into poverty, but happily the issue has made me rich. This hour has given me competence at least. What? Call you a thousand dollars competence? More than competence, I call it an abundance. My own ingenuity while I enjoy health will enable me to live. This I regard as a fund, first to pay my debts, and— next to supply deficiencies occasioned by untoward accidents or ill-health, during the ensuing three or four years at least. We parted with this new acquaintance at a late hour, and I accepted William's invitation to pass the time I should spend at Baltimore under his sister's roof. There were several motives for prolonging this stay. What I had heard of Miss Fanny Morris excited strong wishes to be personally acquainted with her— this young lady was affectionately attached to Mrs. Watson, by whose means my wishes were easily accomplished. I never was in habits of reserve, even with those I had no reason to esteem. With those who claimed my admiration and affection, it was impossible to be incommunicative. Before the end of my second interview, both these women were mistresses of every momentous incident of my life— and of the whole chain of my feelings and opinions in relation to every subject, and particularly in relation to themselves. Every topic disconnected with these is comparatively lifeless and inert. I found it easy to win their attention and to render them communicative in their turn. As full disclosures as I had made without condition or request, my inquiries and example easily obtained from Mrs. Watson and Miss Morris— the former related every event of her youth and the circumstances leading to her marriage. She depicted the character of her husband and the whole train of suspenses and inquietudes occasioned by his disappearance. The latter did not hide from me her opinions on any important subject, and made me thoroughly acquainted with her actual situation. This intercourse was strangely fascinating— my heart was buoyed up by a kind of intoxication. I now found myself exalted to my genial element, and began to taste the delights of existence. In the intercourse of ingenuous and sympathetic minds, I found a pleasure which I had not previously conceived. The time flew swiftly away, and a fortnight passed almost before I was aware that a day had gone by. I did not forget the friends whom I had left behind, 
but maintained a punctual correspondence with Stevens, to whom I imparted all occurrences. The recovery of my friend's kinsman allowed him in a few days to return home. His first object was the consolation and relief of Carlton, whom, with much difficulty, he persuaded to take advantage of the laws in favor of insolvent debtors. Carlton's only debt was owing to his uncle, and, by rendering up every species of property except his clothes and the implements of his trade, he obtained a full discharge. In conjunction with his sister, he once more assumed the pen, and, being no longer burdened with debts he was unable to discharge, he resumed, together with his pen, his cheerfulness. Their mutual industry was sufficient for their decent and moderate subsistence. The chief reason for my hasty return was my anxiety respecting Clemenza Lodi. This reason was removed by the activity and benevolence of my friend. He paid this unfortunate stranger a visit at Mrs. Villers. Access was easily obtained, and he found her sunk into the deepest melancholy. The recent loss of her child, the death of Welbeck, of which she was soon apprised, her total dependence upon those with whom she was placed, who, however, had always treated her without barbarity or indecorum, were the calamities that weighed down her spirits. My friend easily engaged her confidence and gratitude, and prevailed upon her to take refuge under his own roof. Mrs. Wentworth's scruples, as well as those of Mrs. Fielding, were removed by his arguments and entreaties, and they consented to take upon themselves and divide between them the care of her subsistence and happiness. They condescended to express much curiosity respecting me, and some interest in my welfare, and promised to receive me on my return on the footing of a friend. With some reluctance I at length bade my new friends farewell, and returned to Philadelphia." Nothing remained before I should enter on my projected scheme of study and employment under the guidance of Stevens, but to examine the situation of Eliza Hadwin with my own eyes, and, if possible, to extricate my father from his unfortunate situation. My father's state had given me the deepest concern. I figured to myself his condition, besotted by brutal appetites, reduced to beggary, shut up in a noisome prison, and condemned to that society which must foster all his depraved propensities. I revolved various schemes for his relief. A few hundreds would take him from prison, but how should he be afterwards disposed of? How should he be cured of his indolent habits? How should he be screened from the contagion of vicious society? By what means, consistently with my own wants and the claims of others, should I secure to him an acceptable subsistence? Exhortation and example were vain. Nothing but restraint would keep him at a distance from the haunts of brawling and debauchery. The want of money would be no obstacle to prodigality and waste. Credit would be resorted to as long as it would answer his demand— when that failed, he would once more be thrown into a prison, the same means to extricate him would have to be repeated, and money be thus put into the pockets of the most worthless of mankind, the agents of drunkenness and blasphemy, without any permanent advantage to my father, 
the principal object of my charity. Though unable to fix on any plausible mode of proceeding, I determined at least to discover his present condition. Perhaps something might suggest itself upon the spot suited to my purpose. Without delay I proceeded to the village of Newtown, and, alighting at the door of the prison, inquired for my father. "'Sawney Mervyn you want, I suppose,' said the keeper. "'Poor fellow! He came into limbo in a crazy condition, and has been a burden on my hands ever since. After lingering along for some time, he was at last kind enough to give us the slip.' "'It is just a week since he drank his last pint and died.' I was greatly shocked at this intelligence. It was some time before my reason came to my aid and showed me that this was an event, on the whole, and on a disinterested and dispassionate view, not unfortunate. The keeper knew not my relation to the deceased, and readily recounted the behavior of the prisoner and the circumstances of his last hours. I shall not repeat the narrative. It is useless to keep alive the sad remembrance. He was now beyond the reach of my charity or pity, and, since reflection could answer no beneficial end to him, it was my duty to divert my thoughts into different channels— and live henceforth for my own happiness and that of those who were within the sphere of my influence. I was now alone in the world, so far as the total want of kindred creates solitude. Not one of my blood, nor even of my name, was to be found in this quarter of the world. Of my mother's kindred I knew nothing. So far as friendship or service might be claimed from them, to me they had no existence. I was destitute of all those benefits which flow from kindred in relation to protection, advice, or property. My inheritance was nothing. Not a single relic or trinket in my possession constituted a memorial of my family. The scenes of my childish and juvenile days were dreary and desolate. The fields which I was wont to traverse the room in which I was born retained no traces of the past. They were the property and residence of strangers, who knew nothing of the former tenants, and who, as I was now told, had hastened to new model and transform everything within and without the habitation. These images filled me with melancholy, which, however, disappeared in proportion as I approached the abode of my beloved girl. Absence had endeared the image of my Bess, I loved to call her so, to my soul. I could not think of her without a melting softness at my heart, and tears in which pain and pleasure were unaccountably mingled. As I approached Curling's house, I strained my sight in hopes of distinguishing her form through the evening dusk. I had told her of my purpose by letter— she expected my approach at this hour, and was stationed with a heart throbbing with impatience at the roadside near the gate. As soon as I alighted, she rushed into my arms. I found my sweet friend less blithesome and contented than I wished. Her situation, in spite of the parental and sisterly regards which she received from the curlings, was mournful and dreary to her imagination. Rural business was irksome and insufficient to fill up her time. 
Her life was tiresome and uniform and heavy. I ventured to blame her discontent and pointed out the advantages of her situation. Whence, said I, can these dissatisfactions and repinings arise? I cannot tell, said she. I don't know how it is with me. I am always sorrowful and thoughtful. Perhaps I think too much of my poor father and of Susan, and yet that can't be it neither, for I think of them but seldom, not half as much as I ought, perhaps. I think of nobody almost but you. Instead of minding my business, or chatting and laughing with Peggy Curling, I love to get by myself, to read over and over your letters, or to think how you were employed just then, and how happy I should be if I were in Fanny Morris's place. But it is all over now. This visit rewards me for everything. I wonder how I could ever be sullen or mopeful. I will behave better, indeed I will, and be always, as now, a most happy girl." The greater part of three days was spent in the society of my friend, in listening to her relation of all that had happened during my absence, and in communicating, in my turn, every incident which had befallen myself. After this I once more returned to the city. End of chapter 43